Our Father, as we have read about in your word, as we've sung, as we've read from your word, the great glories of our redemption, of being provided and brought into this most intimate union with you through the Son. And we rejoice in the fellowship that we have with you, though separated by our sin, yet brought near, O Christ, through your redeeming work, through your resurrection, through the gift of the Spirit. And now, in Christ, we are sons and sons and daughters. And so we pray that as you speak to us from heaven through your word, that that word would be renewing to our minds, that it would be sanctifying to us as we prayed or we read this morning, that thy word would sanctify us in truth. And that your word is that truth. As Paul said, it is that word that does its work in us. And so we pray that that is, would be the ministry of the Spirit that we know this morning and every morning that we're before you and your word. And Father, we pray that you would as well prepare our hearts to come to the table as your children, to come worthily, to come in faith, to come Enjoy to come circumspectly as we examine our lives as well and commit them to you to walk in obedience and holiness and truth. Thank you for these many blessings and innumerable more in Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen. Open up your Bibles, if you will, to Psalm 104. Psalm 104. I'll have you know, it is my goal as we do this series, uh, as we walk through particular uh, selected psalms, it is my intention to go through one psalm every week. Uh, that's uh, not what we're going to be able to do this morning. I kind of realized that a little bit last night. Well, maybe, okay, I realized it through the week too, uh, but especially this morning. But we will introduce Psalm 104, and we'll begin to look at these great truths uh, that are contained there. There, uh, for us, Psalm 104. Now you'll remember last week we looked at Psalm 8, or at least I hope you remember that it impacted your life enough that uh, you've been meditating on that, I'm sure, all week. Uh, the glories of God's creation of man, and particularly the way that God has glorified himself in the creation of man, and we even considered how that anticipates the ultimate glory in man and his creation of man in the Lord Jesus Christ becoming flesh, redeeming a humanity, a new humanity for himself, and ultimately going to bring us, will bring us to a new heavens and a new earth to share the full intention of God's purposes in creation as we are with him forever. Now, at the heart of Psalm 8, or at the, the contrast of Psalm 8, was the glory of God in creation. And as we, as God's image bearers, look at His glory in creation, we are struck with our smallness, and we are amazed, as to use the words of David in Psalm 8, that he would take thought of us. And yet, in all of these ways, God has designed in our weakness and our smallness to display His power and to display His strength. Nursing babes, he said, display the strength of God and His creative power and in His sustaining power of the weakest, so that in everything God receives glory. Now, 
part of God's creative purpose in man is that he would reflect that glory by ruling over creation, ruling over and having dominion over all that God has made and extracting from creation not only those things that were meant for our flourishing and our joy, but those things that would reflect his image in us. We would be reflectors of his glorious creator as we manage that creation and we use it for all its intents and purposes and harvest it for all of the things that God designed it to be for us and for him. But God not only designed that we would rule over this creation, but we're coming back into Psalm 104, which is going to emphasize coming to Psalm 104, which is going to emphasize another aspect of God's creation and our relation to Him through it. And that is this: that not only would we see creation as something that He has made, and we would see in creation our responsibility to live in it and rule over it and care for it, God's creation, but that in creation, and this was hinted at in Psalm 8, but is going to be unfolded more in Psalm 104, that we would in seeing creation experience the greatness and the glory of God and have and worship Him for it. In other words, that we would see in creation not merely God's greatness, but that we would in creation have an experience and a taste of that greatness in a way that produces in our hearts praise. One person said this, that the revelation does not stop with perception, but is expected to include reflection and drawing of conclusions about the Creator. So in other words, we're not to look at creation and merely say God created this and isn't it great, but we are to reflect on the implications of that creation and our place in this creation in a way that would draw us into a greater experience of His glory. So, in other words, God did not design us to simply look at creation and acknowledge His existence, but to perceive His glory, to consider and meditate on its implications, and to delight in Him who made it, to be moved to worship, to be moved to fellowship, and happy obedience. Let me give you one quote on this. Someone who captured this well. He says this, to the devout, everything in nature speaks of God. The heavens are telling the glory of God. The firmament proclaims His handiwork. God's voice is in the great waters. That voice breaks the cedars. It rumbles in the thunder and howls in the hurricane. The light is His garment. The heavens is curtain. The clouds His chariot. His breath creates and renews the earth. He both reigns and causes His sun to shine upon the just and the unjust. Earth and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years. Indeed, all things come not by chance, but by His fatherly hand. The Bible's view of nature and history is religious and hence also supernatural. It is as the devout and as the believing have eyes opened to that glory of God, everywhere we look, we see His presence and His operation and His provision and even His judgments, and we see His glory. The unbelieving do not, still in spiritual darkness, they do not see that glory specifically as it was meant to draw us to Christ. So unbelievers, unbelief can have strong reactions to creation, can have strong experiences of creation, even inward experiences and emotional responses to God's glory as it's felt there. 
And that's why so many people have a kind of pseudo-spirituality. If someone's spiritual, what does that often entail? You know, when I'm outside and I'm in nature and I feel the sun and I'm under the trees, I feel really close to God. Well, there's a part of that that's true. I think we all can experience that. But that becomes their replacement. Some people will say, that's my church. That's my church when I go out into nature and I take a nature walk. That's my relationship with God. Whenever I hear that, I always think of two things. One is that's a real experience. God created the creation that impacts us that way, to have that kind of emotional impact. But then it's also an expression of the darkness, because in that, the true intent of it is missed. It should lead us up to God, not inward into ourselves and our own spiritual experiences. And this is this intention of God is even further uh, hidden from our eyes through, as we're well familiar with, the impact of evolution, which is a whole system designed to help us to explain why everything is as it is without the need of a creator. If we don't need a creator, it's merely the process that is who knows where it came from, and we certainly have nothing in it, as much as we may appreciate it, that would lead us up to some divine being, some divine creator to whom we owe all things. But the fact is, the sheer magnitude of God's glory in creation renders that kind of blind response inexcusable. This is my introduction. But this is the point of Paul in Romans 1. He says this, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God as a saint, but became futile in their speculations, their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, and of birds, and of four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. So the impact that all men feel when confronted with the, the wonders and the magnitude and the glories of creation is because God designed it that way. And it is of such a powerful witness that God says that witness alone is enough to condemn and justify God's condemnation for those who don't rightly respond to Him. They knew it. So that no one will ever have an excuse to stand before God and say, Oh, but I didn't know what that meant. And God will be, huh? What do you mean? My eternal power was evident there. My divine attributes surrounded you every moment of your life. Every time the sun rose, it was as a voice crying out to you, saying, Worship the Creator. Every sound you heard of rushing water was as a voice crying out to you, saying, Look at me. So never will a man be without excuse for denying the glory of God in creation. It's evident. He says, It's evident within you. But this is not the experience of living in the denial of the regenerate heart. Thus, we have eyes opened. All of creation is a means of meditation upon the glory and the truth of God to praise Him who has surrounded us everywhere with glories and testimonies of His goodness. Regenerate man then holds the spectacle of God's glory and worships and serves the creation. 
And that is what we see reflected in Psalm 104. This is a heart that has been opened to see the glories of God and see those glories of God particularly as they are manifest in everything that He has made. Now, as we come in and we begin to look at it this morning, uh, I would just make note that there is a certain pattern in this psalm, and a certain pattern in this psalm, which is really a general pattern, uh, it follows the days of creation, the creation of life, the, the water that covered the earth, the separation of the water from the land, and so forth, walking through. But I'm not going to really follow that pattern as we go through. It's there generally, but it's not explicit, so it won't be emphasized. Rather, what we'll consider is this, what the psalmist really is drawing us into, which isn't some parallel with created days, although that is in the background, but is to praise God for His power, His providence, His glory in creation, to delight in that glory, and ultimately, to long for the new heavens and the new earth. To long for the new heavens and the new earth. So we're going to look at it uh, in the next few weeks under uh, four headings, and I'll just mention these uh, in the things we go through. One is this that we are called to praise God for making his glory visible in creation. And that's verses one through four. Secondly, that we will praise God for his intimate care over creation, his providence that we see in creation. That's verses five through twenty-three. And thirdly, that we will praise God for his ownership of creation, verses 24 and 30, and number four, that we will praise God, and here is the key really to the whole song, the key to whole life, and hopefully we'll bring this together, is that we would delight in his delight in creation. And I hope that you see a distinction there. Not merely, listen, not merely that we would delight in creation, but understand what he said by the psalmist that we'll see, that we would delight in God's delight in creation. And that is a tremendously important point. Let's begin there by reading the psalm together, and then we'll, we'll take the first point this morning in preparation for the Lord's table, and then we'll finish it next week. But read with me the first one. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a cloak, stretching out heaven like a tent curtain. He lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He walks upon the wings of the wind. And he makes the wind his messengers and flaming fire his ministers. He established the earth upon its foundations so that it will not bother forever and ever. You covered it with the deep, with the garment, and the waters were standing above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they hurried away. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down to the place which you established for them. You set a boundary so that they may not pass over, so that they will not return to cover the earth. He sends forth springs in the valleys. They flow between the mountains, and they give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell, and they lift up their voices among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. 
the earth is satisfied with the fruit of his ways. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the labor of man, so that he may bring forth food from the earth, and wine which makes man's heart glad, so that he may make his face glisten with oil, and food which sustains man's heart. The trees of the wood drink their fill. The cedars of Lebanon, which he planted, where the birds build their nests, and the stork whose home is the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The cliffs are a refuge for the shepherds. He made the moon for the seasons. The sun knows its place of its setting. He appoints darkness, and it becomes night, in which all the beasts of the forest prowl about. The young lions roar after their prey, and they seek their food. And God. When the sun rises, they withdraw and lie down in their dens. And man goes forth to his work and to his labor until evening. Oh Lord, how many are your works! In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. There is the sea, great and broad, in which are swarms without number. Animals, both small and great, there are ships, there the ships move along, and Leviathan, which you have formed, disturbing it. They all wait for you to give them their food in due season, and you give to them, they gather it up. You open your hand, they are satisfied with good, and hide your face, and they are dismayed. You take away their spirit, and they expire and return to their dust. You send forth your spirit, and they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. Let the glory of the Lord endure forever, and let the Lord be glad in his works. He looks at the earth and it trembles. He touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. Let my meditation be pleasing to him. And as for me, I shall be glad in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. An amazing testimony of the glory of God and the providence of God and the power of God and the nearness of God and, in fact, even the promise of God in creation. Let's consider the first point, that we are to praise God for making his glory visible in creation. So this is verses 1 through 4. Verses 1 through 4. We are to praise God for making his glory visible in creation. And this really is quite dramatic. We know as we think of God that God is, Jesus describes him. If you remember in John 4, what did he say? God is... Spirit, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Paul says that God dwells in inapproachable light. God is of a nature and a being that is different than us. He is not material. He is spirit in his essential nature. But God becomes visible, though he is invisible in himself, and this is the point of the psalmist, he becomes visible in what he has made. He becomes visible in his acts. 
One person said this, and, and I love the way they caught this. He says, a king's robe both conceals his body and reveals his majesty. A king's robe conceals his body and reveals his majesty. He goes on to say, Calvin noted, this is the garment, speaking of creation, in which he is hidden in himself but appears in a manner visible to us. When the psalmist expresses this praise to God from his own inner being and from his soul and the greatness of God, he is responding to visible displays of God's glory that would have been incomprehensible to us otherwise, hard for us to even begin to conceptualize. So think of it in this way. We can look at a textbook and describe the power of God and the limitless ability of God, the infinite nature of his power to do whatever he wants, anytime he wants, whatever is consistent with his will, and we can describe that, and we can talk about how great it is. It is another thing to stand before Niagara Falls at the bottom and feel the power and the force of the water as it comes down and to realize this is not even the beginning beginning of the power of God who made it. It's one thing to describe his infinite nature and to, and to give a description of how that means he's, there's no limit to who he is. He is a limitless being. There is no way that he can be encompassed. In fact, everything else is encompassed within him. And you can talk about that, his infinite, the infinite nature of his being. But it's another thing to look up at the stars and then now in our days to have telescopes that can look millions and millions of light years and say there's no end and then to hear the word words of King Solomon to say that heavens in the highest heavens can't even contain him. You go from hearing it to feeling it, to experiencing it, to seeing it. And this is getting closer to God's purpose and why he made it to become in the beginning. Creation then helps us to visualize, and not only to visualize, but to experience and to feel certain realities of his divine nature that otherwise would have been hidden to us. So God says, in essence, you can't fully grasp and see in the fullness what it means to be infinite, but I've made a world that is beyond your capacity to even know where it ends, and then I've told you this is some instance of it. This is some little inkling of what it likes when I talk about the vastness and the greatness of my being. He can say, not only am I telling you that I'm powerful, but I've created a universe that involves immense power, and then I've given you all these foretastes of it here when a storm comes and destroys whole places. Or even beyond that, to look at the massiveness of the ocean and the power of the waves and the power of lightning as it strikes. And he says, that's a little taste of it. So in all of these things in creation, the design is of God that we would feel and experience them in a way that we would delight in Him and that we would see Him as intertwined with every aspect of our existence here on earth. And this is really where the psalm is driving us in what God's intention is. And again, that creation is not merely a display of his glory, but it is this. Creation is an unavoidable invitation and summons of God for us to enter into the experience of his majesty and wonder and to delight in him for it. 
That's the point. And this is even why God created the angelic realm. Let me give you just one example of in Job, in Job, don't turn there. Let me just read it. In Job 38, 7, he says this. And you remember in Job 38 is where God, he, he begins this conversation with Job where Job was questioning essentially the rightness or the wisdom of God and the hardships and the difficulties that he brought onto his life. And, and as Job kind of was being confronted with his friends and having to defend himself, he eventually put God on the witness stand. And so God says, no, no, that's it. We stop it here. And now I'm going to tell you a few things. And what does he do? He brings him face to face with his glory and creation. He says, Job, I want you to remember your place. You've, you've just stepped over the bounds. And you need, you need to be brought back to a right view of who I am. And so he begins to tell him and confront him with his glory in creation for chapter after chapter and verse after verse. And Job is brought lower and lower. But he says this in verse 7 of Job 38. He says, or verse 6, he says, uh, well, we'll start in verse uh, 4. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? On who laid its, cor- or who laid its cornerstone? Here it is. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Think about that. The implication here is, is that God created the spiritual and angelic world before he made the earth. And he did that, by implication here, specifically so that when he made everything else in creation, there would be a whole host of beings to see it and delight in it and give him glory. So that all the angelic realm would see this work that he was going to do. Now you can think they had never experienced a material universe. Angels are spirits as well in that sense. And here Job indicates that he made all of them so that when he was to do this other work, he wouldn't be alone, but with all of these created beings would see it and delight in it and shout with joy. That joy would fill fill heaven at every time God displayed the marvel of his power and his wisdom and his genius as he shaped and formed everything that we know. He did not create merely as some bland or mechanical display of power, but he did it so that we would delight in it and so that we would delight in him. He also did not create out of any kind of necessity or compulsion. When we say that creation glorifies God, and when the psalmist draws us into that, we're not saying that God added anything to his essential glory. That would be impossible. It is in creation that he made a unique display of his glory. And he was under no compulsion to do that. This shows the heart of God that he created out of the overflow of his fullness, not because of some kind of lack. He didn't create because of the deficiency in his glory, but he displayed his magnificence and his wonder. With the idea of God creating so that we would not merely acknowledge his existence, not merely say that he is and that he is powerful, but that we would enter into the experience of it, 
Well, in reality, it says that God displays the strength through a nursing babe and children through what is weak. There's a sense in which He does that through the amazement of a child and the creation around them. That when we see a, a small child respond in such a way, God's essentially saying, that's how you should respond. Every time you see my glory in creation, you should respond that way. You should look at that, and every time the sun comes in your window in the morning, you should go, God, you are great. Wow, you made the sun to rise. You are king in the universe. You are powerful. That's how God wants us to respond as a little child in faith with all that our eyes see. He says, You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a cloak, stretching out heaven like a curtain. The idea here is simply this that God, who's full of majesty and glory in his essential nature, is, is unseen, is, uh, is, is unseeable to our naked eyes, is seen when he stretches out heaven like a curtain. And the imagery is of being clothed with covering. But when he says to cover yourself with light, he doesn't mean it in the sense of covering to conceal himself. There is a sense in which we can't see his essential nature. But he means he covers himself kind of like the king's robe in a sense to reveal himself as well. And that statement is such a helpful statement. The king's robe conceals his naked body, but it reveals his majesty and glory as he's seen. And that's what heaven is. That's what the creation of all things is. It conceals his essential being, but it reveals it at the same time to us. He reveals to us as a majestic garment what would be impossible for us to behold and grasp in its naked reality. He says, You lay the beams of your upper chambers in the waters, you make the cloud, he makes the cloud his chariot, and the one who walks upon the wings of the wind. And again, this is that poetic language. It may, at first, you may hear, ooh, a beam and water, upper chambers, what's going on here? The idea is to be this. He's the one who lays his beams of his upper chambers in the waters. The beams speak of what is stable and what is strong, what is supportive of great weight. It evokes the picture of a king in his palace, and that really is kind of the imagery that goes through here. The king that's in his palace, the king that is clothed in all of his garments, the glory, here it is, the king who sits above the upper water. This is reminiscent of Genesis chapter 1 in creation. Here is what this language in this way. We don't say that it really is in 1723. Speaking of the beginning of God's creation, he says, It takes their notice, those who are denying the future judgment, it takes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water. In other words, when God created the world in some mysterious way, He's poetically capturing that as the king, God was the one who made these elements and He sat above us in waters that somehow were below the earth and then were around the earth and around this creation. And He sat above them as in a palace, as in a king, making this design of all of that that we're 
story. And this is an incredible story. And I can remember as a young boy going out to our driveway and just riding there like this. And you see lighting that flashes and it touches each other in the sky. And then it's flat and we live in the middle of the So it's like a hot and a little The air is always a medium. But there were orange groves all around. And you could see them with flat. So as far as your eye could see, you see the storm coming in. And you can just see them storm is watching and going like that. And you hear his thunder that was so loud and all the stuff is crazy. And this is billowing clouds that are just rolling like that. Where's the common thing that's saying when you see that? That is like a lightning with a message from God. Every cloud that you see is a reminder of God saying, Look at me. Realize that you see me. You see my presence, you see my power. But here's where this really interesting is wrong. The idea of the heart, and this is going to come is that all of these things are by God's command. You don't stand on the same thing. But can I just notice this? The idea there is messages. They carry a message which is not unlike what the psalmist says when he says, day to day, force, force, speak, telling you something. Because these things are giving you a message about God. But here's where it is. Which is similar to the passage in Psalm 85, the writer who will quote this passage. I think he's quoting not from here, so this is from the Old Testament written in Hebrew. He's not quoting from the Hebrew text, he's quoting as all will remember from the Septuagint. This is important because of how we understand some of these things when we come to the New Testament. He's quoting in Hebrews 1 7 from the Septuagint. Now, the Septuagint, there was a time in the history of the nation of Israel where they were in the part of the Greek culture that was taken over by the Middle East through Isaiah. But the point is that many of them have forgotten the Hebrew language. And so there was a translation that took place over a period of time to rival them through Greek. And so when the Greek writers are translating, or translators are translating this verse, they take this as angels, and they say this wind is the angels of God. And so Hebrews 1.7 takes that, and he says of this in Hebrews 1.7, and of the angels, he says, he makes his angels win, and his ministers a flame of fire. And he says this in Hebrews 1.7 to show the superior greatness of Christ, the Son, to, over all of these things, over the angels. Over all of these crazy things, Christ is so much better. And he's saying that in part because there was a tendency in that culture to worship angels almost as if they were divine beings. And saying, no, Christ is of a totally, don't put him in that category. And so that's the point of Hebrews 1 7. Now, it's possible the way it's worded to take the Hebrew as something like he makes his messengers as, as wind and his ministers from flames of fire. Or you could take it, he makes his wind messengers and flaming fire as ministers. So there's, there's a way that we could take that in two different ways. But what's the connection with Psalm or Hebrews 1 7 to Psalm 104? It's this. It's this. What is he doing? He's saying this, it's the idea that God is the king over the earth. And even as the elements obey his commands, 
all created things obey His commands. Even angels, which are sometimes uh, that are God's messengers to men, they're His servants as well, fulfill His commands. As the wind blows and serves His purpose, so angels, who as the wind obey His command and serve as His messengers. As a matter of fact, there is a connection in both Hebrews 1 7 between the word, as you might remember this, the spirit is, is a word for spirit, and then there's the word for an angel, angel, and those things are put together so that the angels, the spiritual beings, also act as the messengers. And I think the, the, the translators are picking up on that idea as well. And in Hebrews, he uses the word for wind and the Hebrew word for messenger as well. And saying the idea is that all created things, even even the wind, but also angels who are like the breath of God, delivering a message to His people, they obey His commands, and Christ stands above them. It's not unlike in Psalm 103, where He reflects a little bit of this. He says, Bless the Lord, you as angels, mighty in strength, who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless you, all his hosts, who serve him, doing his will. And that's the idea of it here. That's the idea. These angels, he's made winds like winds and ministers to flame of fire. And yet he says just before that, these angels, though mighty in their strength, he says they are to worship him in verse 6, to worship Christ. Now, we were originally going to try to finish the whole song. I think you can see how silly that was in intention. But I want to then just stop here as we come into the Lord's table, as we prepare our hearts, to consider the way that the writer of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, applies this to make us think about Christ. To make us think about Christ. And so I'm just going to state these few points very simply. Very simply. That although beyond what the psalmist would have fully understood, these glories of creation that he has responded to are in the big picture of God's revelation, even as it's used by the writer of Hebrews, to point us to the superior wonder and glory of God in Christ. Actually, if you're not in Hebrews, you could turn there. I just want to point some of these things out. In Hebrews chapter 1. And again, I'm just going to mention these very briefly. To lead us into the table. So the psalmist in Psalm 104 is responding to this majestic glory. He's saying, enter into the experience of God's majesty. And then we come into Hebrews, and in light of everything else that's, of course, already been said about Christ, he says these amazing words in verse 3. He is the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature. And listen, He upholds all things by the word of His power. Applied to Psalm 104, we would say that all of these majestic realities of the glory and the majesty and the power and the providence and the goodness and the wisdom of God are sustained by Christ, are sustained by the Son. 
And we know that's who he's talking about because he says right after that, when he had made purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And he's saying, in this mediatorial work that the Son took on himself to reveal God now having completed that work, having completed redemption, having made purification for sins, is exalted back to the right hand of the Father in this majestic display of his glory. We read about that, Jason did, in Psalm 7, or John 17. Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory I had with you before the foundation of the world, before the world was. Show me... Bring me back to that glory now that I've completed your work. And then bring everybody else in that I've redeemed to see that glory. And that's part of what he's saying here. But to our purposes, is just to note that it's Christ who is the one holding this created glory of God together. The Son. Is the Son then who is responsible for speaking all of those things into being through whom all the beauties and the glory of creation are upheld. So what do we see? We see not just that God created those things, is we're reminded that the Son, the one who actually came, is the one who created all of those things. Whoa! That's Christ. Reminded of this as well. It's the Son who brought about both the spiritual as well as the physical beings into world and into being. Christ is not only above them because of his mediatorial work. He's above them because he's the one who spoke them into being in the first place. Don't turn there. Just read this. I'm going to later go back to Hebrews 1. But Colossians says this, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. That is what you can see and what we cannot see. That's the angelic realm at this point. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, that is from the greatest to the least of this hierarchy of angelic beings, all things have been created through him and they have been created for him. Ultimately, that experience of creation is to remind us that all of this was made for the Son. It was from him and it's for him. And it's through him, the scripture is saying, other places. They were created for Him, and they are from Him, and He stands above them. Look at, if you're still in Hebrews 1, look at verse 10. You, O Lord, in the beginning, this is in God's testimony of the Son, or in God's testimony, you, O Lord, in the beginning, laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they will become old like a garment, and like a manor, mantle, you you will roll them up like a garment. They will also be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. He's speaking of Christ. You're above them because you, O oh Christ, there's a sense when the psalmist is saying that again, he wouldn't know it, but as we read it now, knowing about the clarity, the ministry of the Son, we say, it's Christ as well who is in the wings of the wind. It's Christ as well who is in the glory of creation. The Christ, the same Son who became man for us. The same Son as we come into the table who reconciled all these things back to God. And we are a part of His work of reconciliation. Well, I should say it this way. 
we are a part of the fruit of his work of reconciliation. Let me just read these words and, and just have these beers become into the table right after this. It's what Paul says in Colossians. And we can just listen to them. As we think about creation and we think about the glory of God in creation, listen to how he describes it here. Right after saying all things were created through him and for him, he says this, he is before all things. In him, all things hold together. Right now, all of this creative glory is saying that in Christ, they hold together. They, they, are, they are bound to God's, not only his person and his glory of God, they're bound to all of God's purposes for creation in Christ. They all hold together through him. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. That is, I say, whether things in heaven or things on earth. Creation points us to the glory of the Son. So let me just sum it this way. That creation is like a royal garment that makes visible the infinite glory of God in a way that is consistent with His majesty and manifests His presence and it should evoke praise from His image bearers. Creation is also the grand display of God's triune glory in the sun and means of causing us, particularly from the vantage point of the new covenant, to marvel at Him whose power brought this into being. At Him for whom all of these things were created. At Him who has brought us into the even fuller experience of God's creative intentions by reconciling to Himself, by actually taking on to Himself an aspect of that creation, humanity, so that we could share in the joys of salvation, the glory of God in Christ, and the eternal fellowship of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And so when we read those words, that's actually what the symbols of the new the table are to remind us of. When we come to the table, Paul's word says, we, this is my body, he says. We drink the cup, we're reminded, he says, this is my blood, which is shed for you. And when we do it, we remember that we're a part of that kingdom, and he's returning for us. He's coming to take those who belong to him home. Why? Because this table reminds us that we are a reconciled people to God. That we are a people that have been brought back to him from darkness to light. It is a reminder that there is even greater than all the glories and the wonders of this present heavens and earth, a new heavens and earth that is coming. And the psalmist is actually going to take us there next week as well when we consider it. But let's now, as we prepare our hearts, remember the glory of the one who has redeemed us. Remember the majesty of the one who is not... who did not just disappear, but who is at this very point, at the right hand of the Father, this very exact moment, listening, watching, present with us by His Spirit. He is the one who has assigned to us these very elements to say, remember me, remember who you are. And so we take them with that kind of reverence. So let me pray, and then the men will come and hand them out, and then uh, we'll... Go from there. Father, thank you for these tremendous displays. Lord, 
We are so used to experiencing the delights of all that you have made. And sometimes we can forget to wonder. Help us to have this attitude of the psalmist that in living in your world, we would begin to take notice of the details and like a child with eyes wide open, marvel at the mysteries of your greatness and glory that are in everything that we see. And let our marvel in that and our delight in your delight draw us into contemplation of the Son and, O Christ, of who you are, the majestic one who was with God, who was God, and who brought all these things into being and yet became a part of that creation when you took on flesh so that you could reveal the glory of God ultimately in redeeming that creation back to yourself, reconciling it through the blood of the cross. And here we stand as those reconciled because of your grace, your sovereign grace that called us to believe, to see, to love. I pray that as we take this table, we would experience afresh the wonder of that glory of grace and forgiveness in the gospel and be committed as a body together to live for you. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.